Hello again, friends. Sean Johnson here, and welcome to the Disruptors Podcast. You know, data science has infiltrated most enterprise organizations at this point, uh, but it's also actually being used to improve the efficacy of organizations in the social sector as well. My guest today is Andrew Means, founder of Data Analysts for Social Good, Big Elephant Studios, and co-founder at BrightHive. Previously, Andrew was the executive director of uptake.org and the associate director at the University of Chicago's Center for Data Science and Public Policy. Andrew is an internationally recognized speaker on issues related to data and philanthropy. And in this episode, we talk about how smart nonprofits are taking advantage of data science to improve transparency and impact, uh, how they're overcoming issues around lack of data through some unique uh, collaborative models, and how organizations can grow a data competency in-house. With that, here is Andrew. So why don't we start with just how did you, I know you, you sort of had an interesting sort of path, like how did you get into sort of the world of data science in the first place? How did you end up doing what you do now? Yeah, my path is, I think, quite unique in the sense that I, I'm part of the kind of data for good community, whatever you want to label that. And uh, I come at it from the for good side. So I was always really interested in nonprofits, really interested in social change. And I came to data because I thought data science is actually a really good way to create change in the world. Um, and so Why is that? Because a lot of organizations in the social sector, I think, struggle to know if they're actually achieving the goals that they want. Okay. Uh, and they struggle to, to actually know, are they making the impact that they set out to make? And data was a really nice way to validate that. Like, part of the way I think about how the social sector even works is that, in some sense, nonprofits are selling their ability to create change in the world. Right? Like, nonprofits exist because there's something about the world as it is today that we want to see different for tomorrow. And funders, whether it's like me as just an individual donor or the Gates Foundation, exist to buy that change. Like when you give your money to a nonprofit, what you're doing is you're saying, I like the change that you're creating in the world and I want to see more of it. I'm buying that. Mm -hmm. And what the, the issue is, is that um, far too often that transaction relies on stories alone yeah. right like it's an organization saying well i'm doing this thing i, I promise you know and trust they have no me proof. and they have no proof yeah. the data is a thing that can actually validate whether the change that we think is occurring is actually occurring or not got it and it seems like even on the problem side like they whether or not this is a problem worth solving is that i mean is it able to help on that side as well absolutely i mean data like this is the thing with data and data science in particular just, just like it can transform the ways that we get around and that we do commerce and the ways that we do logistics and the ways that we consume and create entertainment, data has the power to actually transform the way that the social sector operates. Mm -hmm. um, whether that is in identifying which problems uh, we want to solve, um, changing how we solve those problems, evaluating whether we solve those problems or not. Like Data has a, a role to play um, across the entire value spectrum. Is that something that you feel like um, at, at this stage of the game that most um, sort of change-based organizations have realized? Or is this still um, early days around that and they, they don't totally get it and you have to kind of convince them of the need uh, hmm. for this stuff? I, I, I do think it's early days. Um, it's not as early days as we had five years ago. I mean, five years ago, 
there was very little work being done around the use of data science in the social sector. And there was, I think, a group of us that were really trying to demonstrate that it was possible. And today we have organizations that have chief data officers and that have data scientists on their staff. And that, like, very little of that existed even five or six years ago. But when you think about the breadth and depth of the social sector, it's still at a pretty nascent stage. It yeah. still is fairly early. And I think part of that is... Um, for many nonprofit organizations and, and change-based organizations, especially established ones and ones that have existed for some period of time, they're run by people that come from a, a, a certain background. Yeah. Um, oftentimes it's uh, human services or social services kind of background, and you, they're not technologists, right? They, they got to their position running, you know, large human services organizations because they started as a social worker, you know, working with, you know, homeless populations. And they just have built their careers and gone up in, the, in this direction. And so there's, you know, convincing some of the, these kinds of organizations that there's actually data technology can help you solve the problems that you care about in new ways yeah. is, is a challenging endeavor sometimes. Is there a fear component to it where it's if... Uh, if if data gives me visibility into the efficacy of my program or not, uh, is there a fear piece of this where Absolutely. they maybe they realize that what they're doing isn't working as well as they would like it to? I, I absolutely think so, right? Like, uh, data is going to come in and, and is transforming the way that the social sector operates. Like, if we think about the private sector, what data essentially did was make more efficient um, uh businesses. Mm -hmm. But businesses were still competing on the same thing. They were competing on their ability to create profits. Yeah. It just data changed the way that they created those profits. In the social sector, the the organizations that win are the ones that tell really compelling stories and have well-connected boards and uh, convince donors really well to give them money. Mm -hmm. Right? They have great like marketing machines. Yeah. They're not necessarily the most effective. Yeah. Right, and so with with data comes in and it begins to actually change the way that donors operate. It begins to bring uh, shed light onto what's working and what's not. I think there is a, a fear among many organizations that it's they're going to look less effective. Yeah, like no one ever looks as good as their marketing campaign. <laughs> sure, right, yeah. and and today the only data that we have about, or largely the only data that we have about nonprofits. Is based upon the stories that they're choosing to tell us. Yeah. And so as you see this shift to a more data-driven social sector, um, it's going to radically change the winners and losers. Is, the, is donor awareness what's driving, what's going to ultimately sort of drive that shift? As they become aware, it's almost like being a more informed consumer, um, are they going to force that level of transparency on these organizations where even if they don't necessarily want to uh, be held accountable that way, they, they don't really have a choice I think to some extent, there's a, there's a challenge here. When it comes to individual giving, all of the research actually shows, and this is, I'm a data guy, like I'm trying to push data for impact, all this kind of stuff, yeah. but when it comes to individual donors like you and I, um, we're driven by stories most of the time. Like, it's the story that really compels us. Mm -hmm. um, and so that money, I think, will largely still be determined by well-reputable rep, uh, brands in the social sector, or I have a friend who started this organization. I care about my friend, yeah. so I'll support the organization. If you kind of step up a level, you look at institutional donors, right? So foundations, whether it be the Kellogg Foundation, Rockefeller, Gates Foundation, Chan Zuckerberg, 
they're becoming more and more data-driven and mm-hmm. their um, philanthropy yeah. and requiring more organizations to share data. But even there, you have a disincentive to some extent. Um, if, I, if I can set up – the correlator to this is finance. And so 20 years ago, you had your investment broker who was supposedly smarter than the market <laughs> – yeah. And was going to make all of these decisions because they knew better than you. Right. A program officer at a foundation acts in much the same way. They're like, well, I've, I've been giving away money to homelessness organizations or human rights organizations or international development organizations for my entire career. I can do this really well. If I come in as a data guy and a data entrepreneur and say, look, I can actually set up the, uh, the technology where let's get all of the workforce development organizations in the state to share data, and I can tell you which ones are most effective, and then you just give them money, that program officer's job is fundamentally changed. Yeah. So there are some that are starting to see the importance of data, um, but I think there's still some disincentives there. I think where we're actually surprisingly seeing some of the most changes is at the federal level. Right? Like federal and state government are the largest donors to the nonprofit sector. Um, in many ways, the nonprofit sector exists to provide state-supported services outside of the state, and they are increasingly requiring more transparency from organizations um, and, and requiring that they share data. It's not always the right data. It's not always done in the right way. There's a lot of problems there, yeah. but they're actually, I think, uh, seeing the, the needle move. Interesting. You mentioned something that I think sounds quite a bit different from how enterprise environments think about approaches to data, and that was uh, um, maybe because of a, a lack of competition. You know, or, or, or different a different philosophy around competition. Um, it sounds like these organizations realize that they have a very small piece of sort of the the pie, and so their ability to sort of tell uh, or to have have the kind of visibility that they would need to make effective change is somewhat limited. And by actually sh- coordinating and actually sharing all of their data with each other. Mm. Uh, they can all end up being more effective. Is that accurate? Yeah. So one of the challenges facing the social sector, the nonprofit sector in particular, is that it's very fractured. It, like, um, there's since there's no incentive for a merger and acquisition mm-hmm. in the social sector, it's very rare that you have super large institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in every city, you have dozens of after-school programs that are all essentially doing the same thing. You have dozens of homelessness agencies or food pantries or workforce development organizations or whatever it might be. We have many, many, many organizations and institutions doing the same thing. Um, We don't have a Netflix that has that kind of market penetration. And and the reason that Netflix and Amazon and Google and all these services work is because they have massive market penetration. They have massive amounts of information that they build their systems on. Because you need a ton of data for an algorithm to be useful. Exactly. For for Netflix to know that I actually really want to watch The Great British Bake Off, like it needs yeah. lots of people that look like me that watch The Great British Bake Off. Yeah. Um, and in, in the social sector, you don't have that kind of uh, like user base. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to, to get there, to gain the kinds of insights that you can gain using that kind of data science is to share data. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's also a moral imperative to share data. Like we need... like. Nonprofits are public institutions. They're part of a public trust. And so we need to know if they're effective or not. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to, to, to require some kinds of transparency when it comes to the impact that they're actually creating. And so who practically does that? Is it, is it one of these organizations says, hey, um, this is important to me and I have the resources to do this? You know, on the on the data side, will you help? Will you partner with us and help? Or is this kind of coming in from, like you said, maybe the federal or state level? Like, how, 
who's driving the push to get all of these organizations to share their data? Who, who, who's doing the job? I would imagine there's like a normalization part, yeah. right, to get all of it to match up. Or yeah, you have to normalize the data. You have to like make sure that when you're talking about graduation rates, you're talking about the same thing, all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. But uh, the, there's kind of two main like places where I'm seeing this happen. So one is some funder is requiring it, whether that be the federal or state government or a large foundation is saying, all right, all y'all, you need to play nice. You know, to, to have access to this kind of funding, this is not going to be required of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like one, you know, kind of lever that we can pull. The other is that there are many institutions. I mean, the nice thing about the nonprofit sector is, for the most part, yes, there are human incentives that sometimes hold us back and all of this. But these are people who actually care about the work that they're doing. And, yeah. um, you know, that actually some of them will say, look, if I'm not the most effective, I should go out of business. Somebody else should get the dollar. And if you can find enough of those kind of leaders and organizations, um, I oftentimes see them the ones at those tables as well, uh, driving these conversations. I mean, this is really, I think, this is a time for great leaders to step up in the social sector and say, there is something more important than my institution lasting another year. There's something, you know, I look to be successful, you know, not just by raising more money next year, but by being more impactful next year. And for me to do that, I need to know how I compare to my peers. I need to know how well I'm doing. Um, and I think there there are leaders throughout the sector um, that that are leading the sector in that direction. What are some examples of of the, the you can I mean just sort of off the top of your head of, of um, initiatives like that uh, that have been successful? Like what was the what was what, what was sort of the impact of by being able to do this? This is something that I can now do that I wasn't previously able to do. Yeah, I'll talk some. So I, I'm the co-founder of this organization called Bright Hive, and we help facilitate some of this large data sharing work and uh, we do a lot of um, initiatives around workforce development Mm -hmm. because one of the challenges of workforce development is that I I try to train you for a job and then you go out and get a job and then I kind of lose track of you right (laughs) like I don't know you know and I might have helped you get the first job but like did you lose it in two months Mm -hmm. where are you a year from now where are you three years from now Mm -hmm. how much money are you actually earning because I can ask you that but I don't know if that's quite true you know um, there's all this kind of challenge of saying if I'm a workforce development organization what's actually going on and and as a society we're really wrestling with training questions and workforce questions and how do we best prepare people for the future of the the workforce and so what we've done is um, we're doing some some work in the state of Colorado for example Mm -hmm. where we're working with the state and we're actually able to get wage and employment data down to the individual level and we're able to connect that to training providers um, organizations that are doing workforce development or colleges or whatever it might be um, and give them back you know kind of say who are you serving let's connect find them and find their wage and employment data and then give you some of that aggregated data back so you can begin to understand you know what kinds of jobs we're helping people get what kind of wage bump are we seeing and what's great is that then we can begin to say who's serving what kind of populations well who's actually doing a good job at increasing uh, family income for example yeah and then funders can come in and say all right we want to support organizations that are effective according to this criteria whatever that criteria might be you said earlier uh that a lot of these organizations are, are fundamentally driven by story based marketing basically um and there are obviously holes with that um you know, the reverse, I would imagine the reverse of that is true. You know, I, I'm reading uh, Stephen Pinker's book right now, uh, and he was saying that one of the most surprising things to him was he thought um, by sharing, he had, you know, 500 kind of examples of how 
this is just sort of objectively the best time we've ever lived mm-hmm. in, you know, by far. Um, and he thought that that would be really, um, that the data would be so compelling that it would sort of do its own job. And mm-hmm. he was very surprised to see that that wasn't the case. Um, do you do you run into that? And is there still like is there still a need for for story? And uh, and if so, how do you how do you sort of connect the the rational part of the brain with the emotional part of the brain and do it in a way where maybe this, the, the 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 data I'm able to turn the data into a compelling story that is more effective than if I were just doing it by itself. Absolutely. So no, absolutely. And uh, there's constantly this kind of question of like data versus story, right? Yeah. And they, I don't think they're on necessarily opposing sides of the field. Yeah. Um, there are ways for it, for it to work together. I, I, one of the things I like to think about is data is this kind of raw resource, right? Like think of um, a block of stone. Like it's this, this raw block of stone. Um, and there's this great Michelangelo quote that says, inside every block of stone is a statue, and it's the job of the sculptor to uncover it. Yeah. And I think those of us like working with data, like our job is to take this raw resource and use our insight, use our experience, use our tools and methods um, to uncover something that's really valuable and mm-hmm. compelling and true. And, um, and I think there, there are ways where this kind of scientific methodology can meet with our ability to tell stories. Because stories is how we make sense of the world. Yeah. Data is actually not how we make sense of the world. Data kind of plays a role in the stories we oftentimes tell. But data is not, like, we don't make pure analytical decisions most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and so I think there are ways where we can use data to validate whether our stories are true or not. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important way. Like, there are things that are true and there are things that are untrue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the role of data in helping us identify what's true and what's not is important. Mm-hmm. And then I think we can find ways to, to tell stories that resonate with that truth yeah. and that further that truth, um, but that's validated um, in part by that data. Uh, I, I, there's absolutely, I think, ways, ways for that to happen. And I think similarly, the role of data isn't, like, I think sometimes we think of data as just giving us something, right? Like, well, the data will tell us the answer. Yeah. And most of the time that's not true. Data should inform the answer, but data doesn't oftentimes tell you the answer. Okay. Um, there's certainly places where, you know, uh, where data is automated, like we're automating decisions using data. And I think those are really exciting opportunities. But I think what's really the most compelling place and where data oftentimes has the most value is in assisting our decisions. It's, you know, the doctor that's standing in front of a patient and looking at the results of a bunch of different algorithms and then using their own experience and intuition to interpret yeah. that and, and make a, a call for a patient. Um, or it's, uh, you know, the, the organization um, that's, you know, trying to help kids graduate from high school, getting a list of the 20 kids that we think is, is most likely about to, to drop out and, and intervening with them and then using their own, um, their own mind and creativity to, to intervene. I don't think it's about computers just automating all of our decisions. Yeah. It's about compu- like augmenting our ability to make really smart decisions with, with data and technology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Quick break to tell you about the annual State of Innovation Survey uh, that Digital Intent is putting together. Uh, we could use your help, actually. Um, just give us 10 minutes of your time to answer some questions about what you uh, think work and uh, don't work uh, in a corporate innovation environment, uh, as well as some of the uh, technologies or trends that you think are particularly exciting. All information is anonymous, and all participants will receive a free copy. For more information, uh, visit us at www.digintent.com slash study. Uh, now back to Andrew. 
for organizations, you know, we, we see it like in the enterprise in enterprise context, um, just sort of an, uh, a lack of bodies, basically, to do the work, um, or at least the perception that there's a lack of bodies that are able to do the work. And I would imagine that that's probably the case, if not more so, kind of in in sort of the the social good world uh, for organizations that are kind of wanting to to start making better decisions informed by data and they don't necessarily know where to start and they don't know where to look and they don't know where to get these people mm -hmm. or where they say they can't get these people. I mean, what, what kind of advice do you give those types of organizations? So I think there's oftentimes um, this idea that the only way to do something with data is to hire some really expensive nerd, right? Mm -hmm. um, and one, like... Any company, any organization that does data science really well, and I'll talk about data science in particular, yeah. um, it's a team. It's, it's almost inherently and almost always a team um, because there's such a breadth of skills that are necessary to like actually turn raw data into like valuable product. Mm. Right? There's a lot of skills along that continuum. Um, and so one person, one data person for your organization is really the answer. Yeah. Um, and and I, I also think that there's this kind of reaction that we need to hire somebody or we need to invest in technology. When, when I think that oftentimes the best place to begin is culture. Like if you don't have a culture that is driven by evidence, yeah. you're going to hire a data person or invest in lots of technology and then never use it. <laughs> right? Like if you're not a culture that's like concerned about your performance or is rigorous about how you – um, you know, like understand are we making progress or not, uh, you're never going to utilize the data that you have. So if you're not that way now, how do you, but you, you want to be that way. If you're a leader yeah. who wants to create that culture and, you know, we, we've seen it again, sort of an enterprise kind of how hard, how much of it is a culture change problem mm -hmm. and a behavior change problem. Um, how, how do you how do you change the culture to get it to be more evidence-based? So uh, there's a couple of things that I've seen that, that I think work well. One is it is important within an organization to have some champion of this kind of way of thinking mm -hmm. who's at the table, um, who's, who's probably senior enough to sit at the executive table but junior enough to, to still kind of get along with the people <laughs> yeah. um, and, and who can really kind of be the, the nagging voice in the corner that says like why is that true why is that true why is that true yeah. why are we making this decision what's the evidence yeah. and, and I think too thinking in terms of evidence rather than just data is really valuable because evidence encompasses a whole I think it's a, it's a term that we use that encompasses a, a much more broad array of things when we talk about data we, we simplify it to numbers and ones and zeros on a computer when really like any and, and, and there's a lot of organizations that don't have a lot of data they don't have a lot of ones and zeros on servers somewhere but every organization can make an evidence-based decision the evidence might look different if you're you know a one or two person small nonprofit or a five billion dollar you know company yeah but everyone can make decisions on evidence and so i think having a champion like an evidence champion is really helpful. Another thing that I sometimes do with with my nonprofit partners is because um, everyone in the nonprofit sector is really nice. We're all just nice people, you know. Yeah. We're we're nice. We just want to get along. Like we don't want conflict. Like I'll actually um, I used to assign somebody in meetings to be the skeptic, to be like, hey, look, we're all like the tendency is somebody throws out an idea and we all agree with it. And we all think it's great and we yeah. all think of all the reasons why it'll work. Yeah. Like I want you to be the person that says like. Your role, like you're identified in front of everyone's role, so it's not on you, you're not a bad person, is to poke holes in all of our ideas, right? At this particular meeting yeah. or for this particular decision. Yeah. And I think that like frees everyone up to think a little bit more critically. 
um, you know, if you kind of just call it out and, and bring it onto the table and say, look, we want to think critically, like poke holes and ideas, let's not take all of this so personally, yeah. um, can also be really helpful. And then the, the third thing is, I think setting up rhythms is really important. I did this thing um, in my, my first role as director of research and analytics at the YMCA Chicago. We would sit down every quarter with our different business leaders, whether they are like running programs, or running facilities for us. And we would do these like planning with data sessions. Yeah. And literally, all I would do is I'd sit down and we would have a dashboard of like some important metrics that we collected um, and KPIs for them. And I'd say, all right, look, like tell us why did this spike happen here and why did this happen here? And all right, which of these numbers do we want to see changed and improved in three months? And what are like three actions that you can take to change this number? Mm -hmm. And then three months later, we'd come back and we'd say, oh, did that number go up? Did it go down like we thought it would? And if it didn't, I'd say, well, did you do the things that you said you you were going to do? And if they did, it was like, okay, well, those didn't work. Let's try something else. And it it gets people in a rhythm of realizing that the data is not some, you know, ethereal out-of-body thing that you have no control over it's actually just a it's a mirror it's a representation of your work Mm -hmm. and if the decisions that you make can actually change the metrics they can change the numbers on on the the dashboard or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. so getting people in that rhythm of like all right here's some information i'm going to interpret that information i'm going to make some actionable decisions about it and then i'm going to evaluate whether they worked or not just getting people into that kind of rhythm um, i think can be really helpful so let's say that I've done that, uh, or I have—I do have a culture that is more sort of execution-oriented, mm-hmm. or I guess you, you know, almost, almost like management by objectives, um, and that's not my hurdle. What, what do I do next? Like, if I want yeah. to, if I want to get into sort of legit data science stuff, and I don't know where to start, where where do I start? Or okay. How do I, how do I go so that? I think the next kind of evolution after that, right? Like, I think there's. Um, a series of what I'd call like data analysis okay. that's really about how do I gain an insight? How do I learn something in my brain that I didn't know before? Yeah. Right? And then I can make decisions on it and all of that. And I, I, you know, if your culture is kind of humming around all of those things, I, ne- I think the next kind of thing is how do I build products? Yeah. Right? So like how do I move from, from if a mental thought product to like a technological product? Um, and where data is actually not just uh, giving me more information in my brain, but actually where you move into that decision supports place or you move and into that automated decision. By place. product, you don't necessarily mean something that I then turn around and sell to external people. No. It's just an internal tool potentially that, that does something on a re- yeah, repetitive basis. exactly. So for example, um, a lot of nonprofit programs are oversubscribed. More people want to get into them than are you're able to fit. Okay. And, and for a lot of organizations, the way that they make that decision is who signed up first. Hmm. And we're just going to let who signed up first into the program. Yeah. Well, that's actually, if, if you're thinking from an impact perspective, that's a really dumb way to, to like decide who gets into your program or not. Yeah. Um, you could make the decision based upon who do I think I'm going to have the most impact on? Who needs, or who needs my services the most? Okay. Whatever it might be. So, so when I'm talking about a product is, you could actually build an application engine yeah. that as people applied, you ranked order them. And you then decided, you know, based upon that rank ordering, who you decided to let into your program or not, hmm. right? So that's like a product. It's something that plugs into your operational process yeah. um, and helps you do the work that you do in a slightly different way. Yeah. So there's a, a there's um, a few ways I think of, of beginning to skill up that kind of and move in that direction. Yeah. Um, there's a guy named Jake Garcia at the Foundation Center in New York. Um, who I think runs the best kind of data science team 
in, in a nonprofit or among the best uh, data science teams at nonprofits I've seen. And what he talks about is a lot around skilling up. Okay. Right? Like, I think there's some people in the social sector that feel that we just need to go in a, we need to, if I could just get somebody who used to work at Google, all my problems will be solved. Right. And I don't think that's actually true. You know, I think we have a tremendously skilled workforce um, that we can begin to skill up and, and give them new, new, uh, new abilities and, and new opportunities. Um, and so one of the things that Jake talks a lot about is as you're having natural turnover at your, at your the organization or on the team, like up the technical skills that are required to fill that role, right? So like don't just fill it at the level it was at, yeah. you know, fill it and say like, look, we want you to be able to do this, but we want you to actually, you know, know a little bit of coding. We want you yeah. to know Python, we want you to know R. Yeah. Whatever, skill up those people, those those people, and then also with the people you already have, give them opportunities to learn new technologies and test those out. Um, give them you know projects and time uh, to stretch themselves. And then nonprofits, this can actually be really challenging because you're under resourced, everyone's strapped, everyone's sure. wearing thirteen different hats. Yeah. But as much as possible, carve out a little bit of time for them to go and learn. And mm-hmm. um, this is a field like if you go to any enterprise company that's using data science, they, they carve out time for their people just to learn because yeah. these technologies are changing so quickly. We also need to do that in the social sector. And then I, I think the, the other kind of aspect to this is um, really starting to, to ensure that the, the tech, tech folks or the data folks are outside of like IT but are really much more attached to the, the mission of the organization, right? Like, uh, they're not like an, a service of IT. Um, they're maybe actually more connected to the program staff or the executive office, where they have a little bit of, of a broader mandate, where they're seen not just as, like, uh, technology folks, but actually folks that are there to help us achieve our mission. Yeah. Um, and so I've seen many organizations where they've actually moved like a data science team out of IT and made them their own standalone team, maybe reporting to the CTO or, mm-hmm. or maybe even reporting to a program person. Um, and I think that's also like a good next step. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to like the, the challenge of staffing um, and just hiring and finding, finding some of these folks, I actually think to some extent social sector organizations um, have the ability to give people more meaningful work. I, mean, there's, I, I know a lot of people in the data science field that are really driven by the problems that they're solving. Yeah. And there is, to some extent, the opportunity to say, look, you could go and improve click-through rates at a big tech company and make $250,000 a year. Sure. Or you could come and help us you know, eradicate uh, malaria yeah. in, in Eastern Africa. Yeah. Um, and we're going to pay you less. Yeah. Uh, but we're still, you know, I think there's opportunities to get competitive pay in the social sector. Yeah. We're going to pay you probably a little bit less, but like you'll save millions of kids' lives. Up to you. <laughs> Up to you which yeah. one you'll choose. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I, I do think there's um, a, a portion of the workforce that's highly motivated by, by that, those kind of causes. And I think if we can get competitive with pay, and there are organizations that do that, mm-hmm. then you can, you can have that kind of conversation. People aren't going to, you know, if, if you've been in graduate school for 12 years, you know, it is hard to kind of you know, you're not going to give up two hundred thousand dollars of income, sure. but you might give up a portion of that, yeah. and to do something that's more meaningful. That makes sense. Have you seen any differences? I know you've been both on like the the pure. I mean, you've you've, you've been in very different worlds. I mean, you've been on the consulting side. You've been in sort of pure nonprofit. You've been in sort of corporate, sort of social responsibility. I guess. Um, have you seen? Have you perceived differences in those worlds in terms of how they're approaching? The problems that they're trying to solve, like I guess specifically, like on the straight up nonprofit side versus maybe like the corporate side, um, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there are definitely different approaches. Um, you know, to some extent, though, I, I think we over-focus on organizational form. Um, and, uh, you know, because really the only difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit is that a nonprofit doesn't have owners. Yeah. It's a public trust. Yeah. So any, any revenues that it generates beyond its expenses go back into the, the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there, there are actually sometimes nonprofits and for-profits that look almost identical yeah. um, in, in their, their work, except they just have this different legal structure. Uh, so I, I do think there are, are some, some differences. I do, I do think sometimes, um, given the, the management structure of many nonprofits, they sometimes move at a different pace. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot, depending on the, what kind of organization you're in, there's sometimes a lot of board ownership. Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, kind of things move at the pace of board meetings. Um, and so there's, you know, a lot of effort, you know, coming up to a board meeting and then, you know, it gets maybe a little bit quiet. And so like there's, there's that kind of, of different, um, pace, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, but I've been in, uh, I, I know nonprofits that are actually very agile and very fast moving, hmm. um, and are, are just like, you know, any tech startup you would see. I mean, that's the thing. Like there are some fascinating nonprofit organizations that if you walked into their office, you wouldn't know if they're a venture backed, you know, new hot startup or, or nonprofit. Yeah. Um, and so there are places that are doing really interesting work. And I think it comes much more down to the leadership, um, to the, uh, the mission of the organization, what you're trying to accomplish. Those things have much greater influence than, than how you're incorporated. Got it. What are you most excited about, like, over the next five years, kind of in this world? What do you, what do you, what do you, think's, what do you think the world of sort of data science is going to look like in five years? Uh, are, there, are, there, are there types of problems we'll be able to solve that we can't currently solve? Uh, you know, what gets you, what gets you kind of jazzed? So I, I am actually a little, this sounds like a little bit of a downer, but I am jazzed for like kind of the hype bubble to burst okay. and us to actually get to like the real value, yeah. right? Like I, I'm excited for like data literacy to increase okay. and where um, a, a broader range of people kind of know what data science can do and what it can't do mm-hmm. and like really leverage it really well for what it can do. Yeah. And I I'm, I'm, can't wait to see a lot of, you know, like hot new tech startups implode because like there's absolutely nothing there right yeah, like yeah. I'm excited for just like the, the dust to settle a little bit and us to see what the, the real value is um, I, I'm from, from the social sector perspective I'm very excited at the kinds and the scale of some of these data sharing initiatives um, I think for the first time we're beginning to see some pretty large scale work being done there mm-hmm. and what that will un- and unlock and enable is very very exciting um, and on the technology side, you know, I think w- as we start to see a more instrumented world, I'm very interested to see how that affects the social sector, the ways that, that we in the social sector take advantage of the Internet of Things and connected technologies and mm-hmm. all, all the kind of stuff that's on the, you know, emerging and has emerged. Um, I'm interested to see how that begins to trickle down mm-hmm. to the social sector. There's some great organizations doing cool stuff with you know, drones yeah. and anti-poaching or disaster relief efforts. There's really exciting stuff um, in the, the the medical field. I was just talking with a, a very large foundation that funds tens of millions of dollars um, or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of studies every year, um, like kind of clinical trials. Yeah. And we're in talks about how data science can actually predict the results of a clinical trial based on you know other existing trials you've already done. Huh. Um, and this can radically speed up the way in which we discover what works. Um, I mean, I, I think that's an area that I, I'm very excited about. I'm, I'm, I think the thing in, in general is that I think we're just going to get much more efficient. Yeah. We're going to be able to say, 
oh, you don't need all of these different medicines. You don't need to go, you know, if you eradicated these two diseases, it would actually eradicate these five others because those are kind of like branch off of them, mm-hmm. right? Or, you, you know, if we um, train uh, the future of our workforce in this kind of way, we'll actually have better employment outcomes or wage outcomes. So I'm excited for this kind of like optimization of um, the social sector uh, to occur. Very cool. My guest today was Andrew Means, founder of Big Elephant Studios. You can find out more information about Andrew and his work at bigelephant.io. Also, be sure to check out our show notes at digintent.com slash Andrew. That wraps up another episode of The Disruptors. For more advice on how to become a disruptor for your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, would love a quick review on iTunes or Anchor or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. So uh, with that, thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll see you back next time.